everyone. Welcome to Conservation Chronicles. I'm Jonah, and I'm here with Mariana. Um, what's new, Mariana? Nothing much. Hello, everybody. Uh, yeah, nothing much to report. Just same old, same old. Yep. Uh, how's it going with you? <laughs> what's, uh, what's the weather like in New Mexico right now? Oh, it's getting a lot cooler since I'm at higher elevation. It's so nice. Oh, my God. Um it's just so nice. Like it's actually cold at night. Like I would call it cold, but during the day it's just cool. Um, so that's been a big relief. How's how's it down there? No, it's it's cooled off here too. Um, I mean, it gets to like the mid eighties during the day, but I have my windows open right now, and I'm like sleeping with the windows open at night, and I, you know, can wear a a sweater um, in the mornings. So that's nice. Cool. Um, yep. I'm glad that the cool weather is coming on us. Yeah. I just saw yesterday when I was leaving from my house, I saw the first sandhill cranes um, flying over. I haven't, I mean, I'm sure there's some that have been coming through Texas, but I haven't seen any mm-hmm. so far. So that was my first ones. And then last week, I had the craziest raptor migration overhead. Oh really? Um, like I was, <clears throat> I was going out to my compost pile to just dump something, and I looked up, and I didn't even have my glasses on, and it was in the middle of the day, and I just looked up, and I just saw like a stream of mostly turkey vultures, and mm-hmm. I was like scrambling for my binoculars in my car, and then I went and got my sunglasses because it was so bright, and I was, I mean, I just sat outside for about a half an hour, and like for the rest of the day. I mean, kind of on and off, I counted at least a thousand turkey vultures. Wow. Um, like probably a hundred Swainson's hawks. Oh, really? Then, I've only seen one of those before. It was, it was so cool. And and then like other, like a few sharp shinned and Cooper's hawks and mm-hmm. um, what else? Like two broad winged hawks because they're, they've gone earlier in the year. But then all of a sudden, and so then I was with my friend and we were just sitting in their backyard watching them and it was just so cool just seeing the streams going over and then we were about to have dinner and I went to run back to my house because like I'm just like a few hundred yards away and I look up and there was just like a a kettle of like maybe at least 30 Swainson's hawks like circling and then they kind of started going north and I was like that's weird and it was evening and I was like I don't know why they'd go north other than if they like overpassed a place they want to roost for the night and they're turning around. And I got in my truck like storm chasers (laughs) (laughs) and followed them. And I mean, I didn't have to go far because just like right across the road from me, this guy was plowing his field. And so all the grasshoppers were being stirred up and all the Swainson's hawks came down into the field and were like landing in the trees. And... I mean, my he- I I was like freaking out because I was just telling my friend like the chances of seeing a raptor migrating raptor group like go to roost for the night are so low because, you know, you never know where they're going to end up in, in the evening. Right. And for them to like land, you know, a couple hundred yards from my house and there were dark morphs, which are like there were like four dark morphs, which are only 10 percent of the population. And it was just in- an insane day of raptors. Um, yeah yeah that's cool um so okay so the the swainson's hawk i saw 
um, was up here in the grasslands. And I didn't know what it was. I actually emailed Brent and he told me what it was because I'd taken a picture of it. It was like a dark blue. Is that the dark morph or is that different? Yeah, that sounds like a dark morph or a juvenile. Okay. Okay, cool. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure if they, uh, but I'm going to look at the map right now. I don't know if they breed in New Mexico. They definitely migrate through, obviously, because you saw one. But yeah, they breed in New Mexico. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah, I can't remember. It was last year, and I can't remember what time of year it was. But yeah, I was. They, I really like them. They're really cool looking. Yeah, they're they're probably my favorite North American raptor. Um, so it was so cool to just see that huge group. That is, I don't know what it is about you, but there's some sort of like luck about you that you always see things that nobody else sees. I don't know what it is. Uh, well, actually, it's I more than it's luck. It's just because you're always looking for them. Exactly. That's what I was going to say. Like, yeah, whenever and I'm always I mean, this doesn't apply to raptors, but listening like when I'm like hanging my laundry, I'll just like stop and like look around. And if someone was watching me, they'd think I was like. Uh, paranoid or something <laughs> like because I like hear a bird and I'm like what was that like Potter <laughs> like walking around with like no head. honestly <laughs> I, I feel like I've become like him like I look like some crazy wandering person that escaped from a, some institution <laughs> yeah. oh god yeah I can't um, wait until you grow old you're totally gonna be like him <laughs> I gotta wear like the super oversized flannel <laughs> And the like, the beanie cap that's like almost falling <laughs> off my on? head because yeah. it's so. <laughs> oh god! Uh, I I mean, I would definitely aspire to be like him. So yeah, no, I would too. Actually, he was awesome, or is awesome. Yeah. Um. Oh, and I also just went on a little mini vacation to the San Francisco Bay Area, mm. and for like a crazy birdathon and was there for a couple days and I am currently at 827 bird species I've seen so far this year. Wow. And then I surpassed 1100 in my life and Holy crap. Yeah. It was it was like a crazy few days of birding and I'm like exhausted from birding now. Yeah. That's probably about like Six times the amount of birds I can identify. <laughs> <laughs> well, some of them, when it gets that big, you're like, some of them, you're like, have I seen that before? And I have to like go oh, check my list. Yeah. I'm like, that's lame. <laughs> <laughs> but anyways, that was pretty cool. I I went on a um like a pelagic trip out to the Farallon Islands. Oh, and saw a blue whale, and it was. <gasps> no Crazy. way yeah i like everyone was like oh cool and they just like sat back down and i was like tearing oh up. i was like it's a blue whale <laughs> oh my god yeah Never that's like see one. wow that's that's amazing i would yeah i'd go crazy if i saw one yeah um yeah but back to school now yeah back to school mm, yes uh, not for me for you. <laughs> Don't go back to school, everyone. <laughs> You'll regret it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, moving on. Yes. Um, I have, I mean, this piece of news is like a few weeks old, 
maybe a month old at this point, which I guess we should also apologize for. Uh, we had like a big gap. Um, yes. Between episodes yes. because life happens. Um, yeah, I'm I'm almost up. Well, I am always the culprit when there's a big gap. So I should <laughs> I should apologize. <laughs> well, I guess that well. tells you how much of a life I have, though. <laughs> Oh, no, no, no. Yeah, well, yours is more exciting than mine is. I was sick, so <laughs> I don't have a good excuse. Yeah. <laughs> That's a legit but. excuse. I mean, yeah, but not an exciting one. Anyway. Yeah, um, so the news. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. So anyways, this is, um, so uh, like I said, a few weeks ago or a month ago, um, this paper was published in Science, and there was a bunch of partners involved with involved in this project, including um, Cornell, Lab of Ornithology. I'm forgetting the other ones. Um, But a bunch of different partners were involved in this. And they were looking at trends of North American birds, or specifically birds in the United States and Canada. And they were using the breeding bird survey um, data from that, which is uh, an annual project in the United States and Canada and a lot of it's citizen science where you mm-hmm. do transects during the breeding season and count the number of you know birds singing or whatever and so they use that data from that long-term survey and then they also used radar data because if you didn't know um, and this is amazing um, you can not you well you can but they <laughs> they use radar to count migrating birds because you can see i mean because there's so many birds during migration season in the air that they can be detected from radar and like prior to the the 60 50s and 60s they just called them like angels or ghost angels or something because they had no idea what they were come to find out that they're birds and like you can you can actually go to um i think it's birdcast.org and it shows like the radar for the entire country for the last night, you can see where birds are like migrating in the middle of the night. Anyways, all that to say they used breeding bird survey data and migration radar data to look at trends of 529 species of birds that breed in the United States and Canada. And the paper like... It's it because it's in science, like science is sort of like short, popular scientific kind of papers. And they didn't really describe their methods that much. And I think when you're using such a huge data set for so many species, like you really need to have some transparency about how you came to your results. I mean, yeah. maybe there's like supplementary information. I'm not sure. But anyways, um, they found that since 1970, there's been a 29% net loss of all species that breed in the United States and Canada, which amounts to 2.9 billion birds that have been lost. That's, wow. Which is a lot. Um, yep. And 90% of the species were just in 12 families of common birds like sparrows, warblers, finches, and swallows. So ones that, you know we consider common, you might not think are declining so precipitously. Yeah. And then grassland birds were hit the worst with a net 53% decline. Interesting. Yeah. Um, 
But it's I I mean I think that's not surprising because all the grasslands have been converted to agriculture. Um, yeah. And then the volume of spring migration, which they've used from radar data, has decreased by 14% since 1970. And then the waterfowl populations have actually increased by 56% and raptors have increased by 78%. So, you know, those groups of birds are doing good, but a lot of the others aren't. And, of course, the majority of these losses can be attributed to habitat change or destruction, like I just said about the grasslands. Um, But it's important to realize with migratory birds that it's not just habitat loss in breeding areas, it's also in non-breeding areas. So even though we may be protecting whatever breeding, forest breeding habitat here, you know, when birds migrate to Central America or South America, if their habitat is being destroyed down there, you know, that's going to affect what's going on up here as well. Yep, very true. Um, so we'll post a, um, the link to, it's called 3billionbirds.org, and they have like, really awesome graphics that summarize all the findings because there's a lot more and it's broken down by bird group and some species. Um, so I definitely recommend checking out that that website because it really summarizes what they found um, in an easy to understand way. Okay, so my news story is actually more uh, just a kind of a fun news story. It's not without much substance, but... Um, it's actually about uh, the wildlife photographer of the year exhibition that the Natural History Museum in London puts on every year. And I really love the winner of the competition this year because there's a rodent in it. And <laughs> it's <laughs> it's a, it, the winning photo is of a, an encounter between a Tibetan fox and a marmot um, on the Tibetan plateau. Uh, I I highly encourage people to look at this photo. Tibetan fox are really cool. Like they have really striking faces. Yeah, um, yeah it's a it's an amazing photo. It's just the perfect moment of like you know the the marmot is you know leaping out of the way and he's I mean he just looks like he's ready for battle and um, so yeah so we'll post a link to that yeah I'm just looking <laughs> we'll post- at it now. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's a great photo. Oh my gosh, um, yeah. Yeah, it really is. And uh, uh, my other favorite reason, or my other reason it's a, it's a favorite for me as well, is because it was, well, one, it was taken by a native Tibetan, and that's really cool. And also, he's an ecologist, the photographer, um, or she, you know what, I can't remember their name, but the photographer is an ecologist as well. So I thought that was really cool, I think. That's p- probably why he was able to take the, the perfect photo because he knew what he was looking for. Um, so, yeah, um, if you by any chance live near South Kensington, London, you can get a ticket <laughs> to this to this exhibition until uh, the end of May 2020. Um, if I lived in London, I would totally go. But um, I don't. And but. Yeah, so that's just, you know, just a, a, a fun link for everybody to check out. Um, all of the photos are actually amazing. The ones that I was able to see, I think most of the photos you can't see because they're part of an exhibition, but the ones I was able to see are really amazing. There's um, the one of the Rat Pack in um, Manhattan. Do you remember that one? I'm looking at them no, right now. No, no, no. Did. Oh, shoot. I didn't, I didn't see that one. Oh, they're like coming up from a, a sewage um, drain. Oh. <laughs> it's, a, it's a really cool... Picture of the rat. Yeah. 
Oh my gosh, there's some amazing ones like what? This oh yeah, the the bird and the icicle. That one's amazing too. Oh, I didn't see that. Um, Whoa. Yeah. Uh, I know. I know. They're all amazing photos. Everybody should check them oh out. Oh my gosh, the puma attacking the guanaco, the llama. Oh, I don't see. I didn't see that one. You know what? I think it's on the Yahoo. Um, oh, it's on the Yahoo one. Okay, I was looking at the Natural History Museum site. Okay. Um, yeah, so there'll be two links. We have a the news that I found initially from Yahoo and then a link to the actual museum. Um, oh, I see. This is a slideshow. You know what? I don't know. I'm so incompetent with the web, with with internet. <laughs> <laughs> I don't realize sometimes. <laughs> so, oh, I see the rats. Oh, my God. That's so cool. Oh, um, there's a really yeah. cool spider one. Oh, and Tibetan antelope. Oh. Very cool. Yeah, they're great photos. Yeah. Um, I love that rat one. I mean, it's not good. the The rat situation is new, in New York is not good, but I, I love rats. I love rats. <laughs> so yeah, so that's. Oh, I see the puma. Oh my god, that's amazing. Okay, yeah. okay. So um, anyway, it's. I mean, it's look not it up. Exactly. Just look it up, people. Yes, please do look it up. It's weird to be talking about images on a on a podcast, but just look it up because um, they're amazing. So we'll move on from the news and get to the topic of the day. So today's episode, we are talking about a topic that we've teased several times before in the podcast, which is research ethics. Um, we talked about, a, 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 we kind of talked around it in our taking care of in the field episode, because the, the two things are related, like taking care of yourself and taking care of wildlife um, while you're doing your research. And our discussion today is going to focus mostly on what we know best, which is field research, but the principles that we'll be discussing apply across the board to all research, including laboratory research and lab ethics actually inform the development of ethics for real field research. So even though we're not lab biologists, we'll be talking about lab ethics as well um, because a lot of it applies. Um, and we, we also have to use a lot of the same, you know, permits and such. Yeah, so when, I mean, like to start off, even before you're talking about the ethics of your research, you have to recognize, I mean, this is like such an important step that because science is so prevalent in the world today, first of all, people don't even know what science is. <laughs> um, like, just as an aside, when I was teaching um, some basic biology classes, like I told them every week, the first question on the quiz is going to be, what is science? And I want you to like, you know, my favorite definition was the process of acquiring verifiable knowledge. And still they couldn't, they couldn't, they just put like testing and experimenting because people just hear the word science or research and they just think of like experiments. And yeah, so that lack of understanding, like I think is, can be an issue with when we're talking about ethics because people, you know, think this is sort of like, just like a fun kind of thing that we're doing. But really the purpose of research is to answer a, some scientific question. And it's, it's not just field work or lab work for the fun of it. You know, there's a, there's a purpose behind it. And before a scientific question is taken further, you know, you have to ask yourself, what is this research going to be used for? Um, because that's, you know, you have to be able to justify your research somehow and the identification of the ultimate purpose plays 
into the ethics because it helps determine if the risks to the animals that because that's what we're talking about if the risks to the animal subjects are, are justified and so if you can't you know justify your research then there's not really a justification for potential harm or, or negative effects on the animals you're working with and I found this paper that I it, I mean it's very simplified but it's, it's a really awesome approach to this um, it's by McMahon et al. from 2012, and they suggested using this thing called a Bateson's decision cube for assessing the value of research against the potential harm of the research subjects, the animals. And so it's like, I mean, we're not going to describe this whole thing, but it's sort of like this, these cubes that are like sort of stacked and there's sort of like a gradient from, you know, animal suffering from high to low and what's acceptable and then the benefits from that suffering high to low and then the importance of the research you know on a three-dimensional level high to low and it's i just think it's like a really good way to summarize and assess you know should this research be going on because if it's a high level of animal suffering but a low likelihood of, of scientific benefit then it's unacceptable research yeah and that that analysis should be done before you even start. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. And anyways, I just, I thought it was like an interesting approach. And like I said, I, this whole process, like you said, when you're starting before you even start your research is just glossed over um, because we're just like in this mode of like getting the research done, you know, especially in academia which don't get mm -hmm. me started on that, but <laughs> it's just like pump out research, pump out research, like ethics out the window, like all these principles out the window. And it's just not the appropriate way. It's, it's unacceptable to do research that way. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I, when I was preparing for this, I thought of um, the story that we talked about in our first episode. If we still have any listeners from then, um, <laughs> Where we talked about, um, I forget his name, but this one biologist who um, euthanized and collected a mustache kingfisher from the Solomon Islands mm -hmm. for because it had never, it, it was a male and a male had never been um, described before, I believe. And so this was like the first specimen of the species ever collected and it, it wasn't harming the population and you know, they're going to be able to do genetics on it and, you know, have that specimen to in perpetuity in the museum. And, you know, of course, there's a bunch of backlash. But here was a case in which even though it was required for the bird to die, the ultimate purpose was justified and the action would also not have a, a detrimental effect on the population. So as far as where it fell in that, you know, decision cube, it, it was acceptable. But a lot of people didn't see it that way because they weren't thinking about the benefits of it. And it's not like the animal was suffering either. It was just dead, you know? And yeah. So I just wanted to like recall that. Cause I, I thought it, we talked about that before and I, I thought it kind of played an important um, role in this discussion. Just um, going back to that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So when we're talking about research ethics and this 
you know, kind of relates to the decision making that people like that researcher had to make. There are three R's commonly used in animal research in the lab, and they're also now applied to field research. They're replacement, reduction, and refinement. So in terms of replacement, the question you should ask yourself is, could another method work for answering the questions I want to ask? Which is, you know, part of the scientific method is <laughs> asking that question. So that's that's a really important question. And in terms of reduction, the question is, how can my experimental design be optimized uh, to minimize stress and or pain to the study subjects? So um, that goes back to the the Bates, um, sorry, the Bateson's decision cube. And then the third one is refinement, in which the question for that is, how can capture handling and marking methods be improved? This is really important because I find, or I have found in my field research in different projects, that there's um, kind of a, um, there's a fidelity to, to methodology, especially mm-hmm. when you're working with older um, biologists. And there tends to be, uh, sometimes to the detriment of the project, where I say, well, can't, you know, they're, they're stuck in their ways and you might think of a way to improve it, uh, improve the methods, especially for, you know, the topic we're talking about today, you know, for the, to minimize the stress and pain of the subject. Um, and sometimes you'll bump into, you know, a conflict, which some people consider that a generational conflict. I don't necessarily consider that a generational conflict. I think it's just a philosophical conflict. Um, you know, some people like change, some people don't. And um, it's not, you're not always right when you think, oh, there might be a better method for this. You're not always right. Um, I should, I should make that point, but it's important that you voice your opinion. If you think there might be a better method, I did that. Um, actually, no, you know what? I didn't do that. Okay. So <laughs> my personal story with that is with John, where when I first started working with him, John Hoagland with the Prairie Dogs, I thought, God, there's got to be a way to improve you know, this, the way we're doing this trapping. And I thought of voicing that opinion to him. And I would have, if my, if it hadn't changed, my opinion actually did change because, um, when I thought about it throughout the summer, his methodology was really streamlined and it would like, there was no way to improve it. But that being said, refinement should definitely be, you know, right there, um, at the top as well, because, Oftentimes methods can be improved, especially if they're methods that have been followed for a long time. Um, so anyway, so uh, a little bit of a tangent there, but well, not really. But <laughs> so you want to apply the three R's, replacement, reduction, and refinement to research across the board. But they're especially important uh, when you're capturing and handling wild animals, which is, you know, the work that we do. Um so when you're capturing and handling wild animals, this falls under what we call invasive work. And it's kind of a strong term, but it's it's more of a technical term, which really means you're introducing some amount of interference. And it's, it's versus non-invasive in which, you know, non-invasive work would be, would include like no interaction with the subject or negligible interference, basically. So invasive work obviously poses the greatest risk 
to the animals when you're doing field research. And of course, there's a wide spectrum of the risk depending on your methodologies, which is also why it's important to refine those methodologies. And on that note, many institutions now require approval for even what's considered a non-invasive observation studies um, in which animals aren't directly interacted with or interfered with, but in which behavior could be affected. And this is important too, like when you're doing an observational study, which is the work that we do with prairie dogs or that John and I do with prairie dogs, the behavior can be affected. Actually, well, John and I also trap, but you know what I mean? Um, their behavior could be affected just by the in, your inherent presence in, in their environment. So to bring my own experience also back into this, uh, right now I'm doing an observational survey. It's not a study. It's a survey or it's really a census on a, my post-plague colony um, up in uh, the Valles Caldera. Well, I shouldn't say right now because I'm done with it. But in order to do that, the the Park Service required me to apply for an IACUC permit. And I they did not approve me for trapping. Uh, but they did approve me for an observational study, but I still needed a permit and I have to carry that permit with me at all times. So I just mentioned Iacook, um, which Jonah is going to explain to you all if you don't know what that is. Yeah, so we call it Iacook in the United States and maybe Canada, I'm not sure, but um, Iacook stands for Institutional Animal Care and Use Committees. And then I know in Europe, they're just called animal ethics committees, which is way easier. But these committees, I mean, they're the, they're the same thing, the way they operate. I mean, they're operating under different statutes. Um, but IACUC in North America are actually legally mandated. These committees are legally mandated by the Animal Welfare Act and by public health service policy to review, inspect, and monitor research that's using animal subjects. And so these were formed, these committees were formed, and and those acts, like Animal Welfare Act, were formed for standardizing animal welfare practices for lab research, but now they're applying to field research, where for a long time, field research just kind of got, I don't want to say like got away with things, but you know, they didn't have to, um, they weren't beholden to these committees and they didn't have to meet these standards. And I think that's where, how you were talking about a lot of like older methodologies haven't been refined because for the longest time they weren't, there was no oversight Yeah. and, and standards for that, like official standards. And so these committees, um, they have to include, you know, th these committees, um, are commonly found at well every university like I'm pretty sure every university at least is doing some holding some lab animals or doing some lab research mm -hmm. um, they have an IACUC I'm not sure if like agencies have an IACUC yeah well the park service does so yeah okay yeah I've never I've never I've only ever dealt with um, university IACUCs but yeah basically any organization that's going to be doing research has to have an IACUC and the members of the committee have to include a veteran veterinarian who is ultimately responsible for the care of the animal subjects um, that are being used in the research. And then there has to be at least one member of the public not affiliated with the institution or agency so that there's, you know, not 
institutional bias. And I mean, this is this is like a strong system, but of course, with everything, there, there are some um, some flaws. And so especially because these are centered around lab research, committee members aren't always competent with you know, wildlife field research. Um, and the committees often involve a disproportionate amount of, of lab-based people. And, you know, I could said I've dealt with, like, one I was on, which I'll talk about shortly, which was the most important one, there was no field people on it. And so mm. that kind of, that kind of the skew that can um, affect the appropriate oversight, I think, yeah. Um, and of course, I'm generalizing here, but um, I think it's important to have people that understand the field aspect now that field research is, um, you know, accountable to these IACUCs. And, you know, another important oversight that's lacking is the relation of the, the research that's being proposed because these committees re- have to review any proposed research and they have to approve it before it can happen. And so these committees aren't familiar with um, like literature on similar research, you know, so is this proposed project following commonly held practices or using similar methodologies um, as research elsewhere doing, you know, similar work. And I think that's, I mean, I'm people might be thinking I'm just saying that because I'm a scientist, but I think that's really important because, you know, if you're doing, if you have some methodology that's c- contrary to what everyone else has done for studying this species, then the committee needs to be aware of that. And because they, I'm not saying they have to be like this library of field literature, field research literature, but, you know, there just needs to be more um, oversight with this kind of thing when there's questionable methods, especially when you're capturing and handling which, like you said, poses the greatest risk to the animals. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And then, and, you know, another issue with lab-oriented people making up most of the committee is that they don't really understand that the conditions in the field, they're, they're, you know, things aren't as easily manipulated in the field like they're in a lab. These animals are wild. You know, conditions aren't predictable. There's just a lot of spontaneous changes that can occur that you don't anticipate. And there's just um, the safety risks are greater for the people involved and the animals. And so there can be a disconnect. And again, I'm just like speaking from my experience. There, there can be this disconnect between the lab people on the committee understanding like what's practical in the field and what isn't. Because Obviously, a lot of the lab standards aren't going to be practical in the field, but that doesn't mean that like standards should be compromised. There just needs to be more of an understanding that we're kind of comparing apples to oranges when we're talking about the field and the research for a lot of the, the conditions, at least. And then, you know, the statutory and regulatory language from the Animal Welfare Act and the public health service policy they are kind of vague as far as defining what field research is, you know, quote unquote field um, or invasive procedure or even just harm. And so it's, it's left up to the discretion of the, the committee a lot. 
which can be really good because especially members of the public can be, you know, can scrutinize potentially harmful methodologies more. Um, but that also means that there could just be this, um, you know, oh, this, this, you know, this, I'm just going to use an example to explain what I'm talking about. Like the professor at this university has all, he's done a lot of research and, you know, he has a bunch of different IACUC protocols. And so they, it's like, they know the, the principal investigator for the project. And so they just, they're going to let it go because they, you know, he knows what he's doing. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where the lack of proper statutory and regulatory language um, fails this, this system. Um, and actually the public health service policy doesn't even mention field studies. So yeah. that's completely up to the discretion of the IACUC, um, which again, could be good and could be bad. There is a, a guide for animal care and use that, that IACUCs um, sort of use as, as a standard so that it's standardized across the board. But again, it's heavily focused on lab research and it leaves out statutes and regulations that deal with wildlife, you know, like permits that you have to have for transporting wildlife, permits you have to have for capturing and handling certain wildlife like endangered species. Mm-hmm. And so it this, you know, this just leads to more uh, a further lack of of clarity for IACUCs in in understanding, you know, how they should proceed in approving this protocol, this project or, you know, suggesting changes to it or or even just checking to make sure that the projects have the proper permits. So, like, basically, the, the summary of the IACUC is that review is is generally based on the collective opinion or experience of the committee rather than on, you know, s- very specific standards for the field research part of it. And then, you know, this is particularly the case when it comes to research justification because the Animal Welfare Act doesn't require weighing potential harm with with benefits of the research. And so that's where it becomes um, very subjective based on who's on the committee. And that could be good and that could be bad. So, you know, these these IACUCs are are meant to legally uphold these animal welfare laws. But, you know, the subject of research justification and even things related to field research is it's just sort of a gray area and as far as research justification ultimately there's no one that's responsible you know because that's very subjective right in a Mm -hmm. lot of cases yeah which i mean i'm not advocating for like some (laughs) organization or, or agency that like scrutinizes all research but i think be like i said science is just so prevalent there's so much stuff out there that is not real science and that's not research that's justified and because there's no oversight of this kind of thing this kind of that kind of research just continues and i i don't know how you address that um yeah there has to be a there also has to be a personal accountability which i think as we've been kind of alluding to is 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 sometimes lacking which is why you need a strong committee to you know uh, compensate for that that's not there yeah. So clearly the IACUC is really important and it's 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 important not just for the institution 
um, to assure, ensure that the field research that you're doing and your methodology with your subjects is, you know, in line with all with um, with all the ethics. But it's also for you. You know, you you're not just this isn't just a piece of paperwork that, you know, you have to get through. It's not just a chore. It's, you know, there are principles and guidelines that you have to follow and you have to obey them. And they're, they're often, often IACUCs will ask for, you know, extreme specifics, like, you know, what kind of bait you're going to use or, you know, exactly, oh, or even handling time, you know, like how long you're going to be handling the animal. And if you, if you say that you're going to be handling the animal for about 10 minutes, you want to make sure that it's around there, you know, barring contingencies or, or unexpected things. But that, that's also like, that's also varies between the IACUCs. And that's where mm-hmm. you know, the, the point of the IACUC is to be standardized. But a lot of times it's just not because, you know, there may be some institutions where the IACUC is strict and requires those kind of details. But there's others where, you know, like I said, like, oh, well, this professor knows what he's doing. So, you know, we don't need all those details and they just will approve it. Yeah. And yeah, I understand the process is, you know, annoying and, and stuff, but it's it's there for a purpose. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they have to be they have to be more objective when they're impro- approving these things. Um, but yeah, no, that's a good point to make. So in addition to IACUC approval, you also need appropriate permits, especially government permits um, like uh, research and collecting permits, for example, which, you know, are related to IACUC. But you also need those permits as well. And these additional permits, you know, depending on the agency um, or the institution, they also play a role in determining whether the research protocol that you're using is justified and ethical. And this is really important when you're doing field research. So, for example, I carry my NPS permit. Um, if it's not on me, it's in my car. And this this permit is separate from the IACUC. It's related to the IACUC, but it's separate. And it has, uh, it's a, it's a, research permit, and it has a lot of the same language as the IACUC. Um, it's, but it doesn't, it has the same language as the IACUC, but it doesn't count as the IACUC. So it's a separate permit that's, and it's necessary, especially because my application for the IACUC, um, since I wasn't permitted to trap and handle, this permit gives me permission to do the other parts of the research that are necessary for the survey that I had to conduct, including the observation and the methodology behind the observation, because it's, you know, I'm not just sitting out there, you know, watching them. I'm not just sitting out there watching them with a pair of binoculars, not doing anything. I have to access the site. I have to go in there and um, mark burrows, things like that. It's important that I have a permit that allows me that access and keeps me accountable. You know, often when I'm out there, a, a warden will drive by or a biology or a biologist. But when, when the warden drives by, they go pretty slowly <laughs> and they're watching me because they know that there are prairie dogs at that site. Granted, there are only three right now, but, <laughs> but <laughs> you know, if, if the warden doesn't know me personally, they want to know why I'm, you know, walking around uh, uh, among the burrows and they'll, they'll pass my car and, they will always look for the permit in my car. If it's not there, then they have to get out of the car and approach me and ask for the permit. Um, so 
yeah, it's important to keep myself accountable. And it also keeps the park accountable too. Like they, they need to watch out for who's there and they need to know what kind of research is being done there because they need to ultimately also the welfare of the animals, is their responsibility as well. Um, so that's important for compliance, um, especially with animal ethics. And when we're talking about, you know, when we're talking about ethics, you know, it, it often coincides with animal welfare and many funding sources. Well, it does have to do with animal, but many funding sources now require confirmation of compliance with the animal welfare standards in your permits. But as Jonah was saying about, you know, some issues with, you know, on the compliance side and the standardization sides, um, it, you'll often get no feedback um, or there's no further investigation on whether you are complying with animal welfare standards. And we, you know, the question is, are they even following up? Are they even following up with those standards and your compliance? What's the extent of the review from that end? Often, when you're not getting any feedback, when there's no following up, it it could it can feel more like a legal formality and less like an actual concern for them. So almost like, oh, well, we have to do this, but whatever. Like we don't we don't really care if you're complying or not. And that can be a problem sometimes um, with um, institutions, especially. Yeah, because like if say you're applying to. Uh an NSF National Science Foundation grant and you know no one's going to write in their proposal like you know that they're going to be doing bad I mean I don't want to say like bad things but that they're going to be like oh handling an animal poorly and we're you know we're not going to be monitoring its vitals and stuff like people aren't going to write that or they're going to be vague and assume that the reviewers of the proposal like aren't as familiar with those very specific details mm-hmm. and so like what is NSF going to be like well, we want to know more details about, you know, how the drug is going to be administered or how the animal is going to recover or like they're they're not following up on all that. They're just looking for you to like check a box because, you know, if some research ends up being unethical and, you know, gets in trouble, they're kind of just covering their own butts by saying, well, we asked if it complied with the animal welfare standards. So I'm not like saying like, you need to have like this oversight from like five different angles, but it's just like, what's the purpose of having that requirement for compliance? If it, you know, nothing is going to be done about it. Yeah. Accountability isn't, isn't a static thing. You can't just say, okay, this box was checked. So I'm accountable and we're done with that. You have to, you know, it's a process and you have to make sure you're um, following that process. And yeah. Yeah. Um, Okay, so I'm going to share my experience, which, um, well, this isn't tooting my own, own horn, but I would like to hear someone top this breach of ethics um, <laughs> from a project that I worked on that I'm going to try to not get too in an uproar about. Um, but it was with Southern Illinois University, and I'm throwing them under the bus because they are repeat offenders. Um and a lot, I mean, a lot of the issues I was talking about come from my experience at this university. Um, so I was working as a um, technician on an otter, river otter project, 
in Southern Illinois. And um, it was a master's project. And so I came on as a technician and we were going to be trapping river otters and putting radio transmitters in them because, you know, otters are sort of like a tube shape, so you can't put a collar on them. So you have to surgically implant a radio transmitter, which, you know, sounds like, oh, that's so horrible. But it's it's done all the time. It's yeah. like the only way you can track otters. And so obviously doing a surgical procedure is highly invasive and, um, you know, requires a lot of training. And it, it's a much bigger deal than just like, um, you know, like trapping a prairie dog or, um, you know, catching a bird in a mist net or something, you know, it's, it's way more intense because you're doing surgery on an anesthetized animal. And I'd never, I'd never done surgeries before, you know, I'd immobilized and, and handled immobilized animals before, but this was like a whole new thing for me. And it was shocking when I arrived, first of all, that I was the only person that had any experience with chemical immobilization and dealing with drugs. Like, even the graduate student didn't. So, like, that was a little concerning in the beginning. And then there was no protocol. Like, you know, if I, you know, say I didn't have the experience I did and I showed up, there wasn't any protocol that I was handed to know, you know, what we're supposed to be doing, what we're supposed to be following, other than, like, she just said, this is what we're doing. And so I was like, you know, questioning a lot of it because the drug use was inappropriate, you know, based on what I knew about the drug. And then also, of course, I was reading literature about trapping otters and no other literature used this drug. Um, There was no oversight from the faculty advisor. And which is very concerning. I mean, like, yeah. Laws were broken, I'm just going to say, with the chain of custody of handling these controlled substances, these drugs. And, you know, my head isn't on the chopping block about it. So, it, you know, even though I told them, like, these have to be under double lock and key, you know, this is stuff that I've done before. And, um, you know, you just, I just show up and you're just like, oh, here's some drugs. Um, it's concerning. And then, you know, back to the, the surgical procedure. There was... We had like one one hour quote unquote training with the vet on a on a dead otter. And it, I mean, it was a useless training. He didn't talk about anything important. And when I questioned things like about the use of the drugs and certain things about recovery, you know, he couldn't answer them. Yeah. And so it was, it's like shocking that this person is in charge of this and these important things aren't being addressed. And the graduate student was watching YouTube videos on dog and cat spay and neuters to learn how to do surgeries on this wild animal. Oh my God. Because we only ever had this one hour of training with the vet. So, you know, I mean, basically to, you know, give you a picture of what we're doing, we're trapping otters in these cage traps and then we'd have to get them to a, you know, an inside facility to do the surgery so they wanted to drug the otters in the field, take them out of the cage, put them in a kennel, carry them to the facility, which was a minimum of 30 minutes away, and then do the operation. But by then, of course, the drug is already wearing off and the peak, um, 
the peak like analgesic effects where the animal can't feel pain have passed. So then you just end up topping up on drugs, which, you know, confuses the timing of, you know, when they can feel pain and when they're going to recover. And it just when you're topping up like that on a long procedure, it's just so bad. And you look at the literature. I mean, these people had never read any literature on trapping otters because they always transported the animal awake, you know, minimizing stress. But I think that it's better to transport the animal while it's awake and then drug it right before you're about to do the surgery than to drug it and keep drugging it and drugging it and then it dies. Absolutely. Like we had happen. And so, like, it, I mean, I was also talking to people that I knew that had trapped otters before and, you know, they were putting me in touch with people. So it's not like I was just pulling this out of my butt. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> they weren't, they hadn't, they weren't going to monitor vitals during the surgery. Oh my God. And so this is like, this is, was all, this project was like a follow-up to a project a few years earlier. So everything they were doing was based on what had been done in like 2014. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I come on the scene and I'm, stirring things up because like I'm not going to be a part of something that's that's operating this way and you know I mean fortunately the graduate student was very open to it in the beginning you know so I wrote the protocol I'm just the technician like yeah (laughs) I I wrote the protocol and you know I was like training other techs um about the drugs and stuff and you know I was going to be doing the drugging and um unfortunately my my partner she had worked as a vet tech so she like knew a lot about the surgical procedure stuff and like dealing with dealing with sterile things because i had no experience with that um so of course we were both like we need to monitor vitals and they're like oh well we didn't monitor vitals before and like oh frustrating well that's why you had eight otters die on the previous study and um and you know there weren't any emergency drugs available um also they weren't they were we were trapping in winter and you look at every paper published on <laughs> otters and they're trapping during the summer because these are aquatic animals and they come out and it's freezing out and they're wet and they go into a trap and they're stuck in the trap overnight and so they're freezing and wet and then you drug them and the drugs cause them to lose their ability to th- thermoregulate and so then they get hypothermic and that's why they die and it's just like, and you know, oh man, just so much, so much other stuff. Um, yeah. You know, there were no emergency plans made, like I said, with no emergency drugs. And all these things were avoidable if, you know, someone had just even like read papers on otters or mm-hmm. spoke to someone who had done this before besides the people that did the last project because they had no clue what they were doing. And I don't even remember now because I try to block it out, but we had two or three otters die out of like the eight that we caught mm-hmm. and all because of avoidable issues and mostly because of hypothermia. And, you know, all of us technicians were on the same page and advocating for these changes, but there was so much resistance, I think just because of, of ego or not. I think I know because of ego, which is tragic that that got in the way and otters died because of it. But, you know, we weren't, recommending all these things because we were trying to toot our own horns like everything we were advocating was 
complying with certain ethical standards that have been established for doing research on other animals and otters in general. And so, you know, the otters died because of avoidable issues. And it's so, and you know, like they couldn't even tell me how the eight otters died in the past study. Mm-hmm. They were like, yeah, it was drug issues. It's like, that's not a sufficient explanation. You can't just write it off as drug issues. Why did they die because of the drugs? And listening to them, like they would release animals before they were fully recovered from the drugs. So obviously that's why they would drown. <sighs> they were trapping in the winter. So obviously they were dying because of hypothermia. So it's so easy to write it off on the drugs when you don't understand anything about them. Um, so it was just this horrible like series of events that just built up and built up and built up until, well, my one, our one coworker just quit. And then my partner and I, we made the joint decision to, um, you know, report the project to the IACUC knowing that we were forfeiting our jobs. Yeah. Um, which was difficult because, I mean, I know for her, but for me, like otters are one of my favorite animals and it was like a dream job. Mm-hmm. And, but it, again, it's not worth it. You know, it's, it, it was not fun. <laughs> like it's supposed yeah. to be. And so we reported it to the IACUC and, um, you know, had to go through all this whole process. And, you know, when you report something and I'm hoping that there's people out there that are are hearing this story and um, are willing to, you know, it, we weren't afraid to report it. I mean, the only thing, well, there was nothing that we were afraid of reporting about, but I know a lot of people when they're in projects where they're uncomfortable with what's going on ethically, they're afraid to report it either because they don't want to lose their job, which frankly, that's not a reason to not report unethical practices. Um, but also because, you know, you don't want to be ostracized from you know other research or or whatever reason but i just encourage people like do the right thing and report unethical research because there's no reason i mean maybe the the situations aren't as 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 extreme as animals dying but um that's what the iacook is there for and so there's there's whistleblower protections that come with this um which again, we weren't like especially concerned with, but like, (laughs) because the vet, the vet was ultimately responsible for this when he got wind of us reporting because in our initial complaint, you know, we didn't explain those details of our Mm -hmm. issues. So he got included on emails. And so he broke the confidentiality and told the graduate student, and just like this whole ridiculous series of events went down that, you know, all just to cover someone's just to cover their butt rather than taking responsibility. And it's just a shame. And it's why I'm so cynical when you're talking about like, you know, personal accountability plays an important role. And yeah. I think the reason I'm so critical of these eye cook is because I don't have faith in people's <laughs> personal accountability because of experiences like this, because yeah, it's a, it's a major offense. The things that went on, like legally, even like I was saying, and, um, so anyways, we, you know, we had to testify in front of the eye cook and <laughs> this is, this is shocking. You know, we're, we brought up the previous project and the previous project never reported to the eye cook that they had eight otters die. So oh when you're gosh. done with like your eye cook, you know, your study period, 
you have to report the results of your study. And especially when animals die, you have to report it. And, you know, we brought it up in this hearing that we were testifying at and they had no idea. Wow. And that's really concerning too. And I mean, that's might just reflect this probably reflects this university because they're repeat offenders with other things as well. But, um, and then, you know, the, they, they told us about the protocol that had been submitted to the IACUC. It didn't even include the transportation of otters or like the handling procedures. All it just said was we were trapping otters with, um, these cage traps and we're using this drug and we're putting transmitters like didn't require any further details, which is shocking when you're talking about a surgical procedure. Um, and then, you know, again, just the, how these committees can be so subjective The the chair of the committee, and we were warned this by the compliance officer, the chair of the committee was friends with the vet. And so she was very, um, you know, she scrutinized our issues and our complaints um, and almost made it sound like we were like making it up, like we were disgruntled employees, which was the opposite. Like we knew we were going to lose our job because of this. If we didn't say anything, we wouldn't have lost our job. And so, you know, there was just a lot of pushback and it was a long time. And so we left, you know, that was our last day. And we left and we followed up with the compliance officer and kept asking, you know, we, we want to, we're committed to making sure that something happens with mm-hmm. this. Cause they were like, Oh yeah, we're going to um, contact you and get your contacts of the people that have done otter stuff. And you know, your input on this new protocol and blah, blah, blah. And we just never heard anything. And, you know, maybe like a year later, cause we would email every two months or something. They were like, oh, yeah, a new protocol was accepted and there's a new faculty advisor um, in charge of it, which, I mean, for me personally, doesn't doesn't satisfy me because, first of all, they never contacted us. So where were they getting this information from? And just because it's a new faculty advisor doesn't mean that all the issues are solved. Um, as a, As an aside, while we're bashing academia... That mm-hmm. faculty advisor, the reason he was so disconnected and there was no oversight is because a few months later he had he was moving to a new position at, you know, a different institution. So he didn't care. Yeah. And I mean, I guess the the among the many take homes from this story is these issues. And we talked about this in the taking care in the field episode. These issues are sort of systemic in academia and graduate projects because Projects like this get put on students that don't have sufficient experience a lot of times and where there's not enough oversight from a faculty advisor. And a lot of times the faculty advisor doesn't even have the experience. They're just like given the project by the state because they've done some other mammal research that's not even relevant. And that kind of stuff is really disturbing to me because it's just sort of like going on your status rather than your your actual credentials and experience yeah that happens a lot in academia definitely I think you know I I just had a thought um as you know you were telling that story about the the process of applying for the IACUC and um you know the the IACUCs I've applied for so far you know you you don't meet with the committee you 
Um, at least not that I've seen. Do you know of any institutions where you have to meet with the committee? Not in my experience, no. Uh, neither in mine. But um, so based on that experience, you know, I feel like you should. I feel like, you know, there has to be, you know, some sort of um, procedure um, where you meet with the committee because there's so much you can write on paper and they can, you know, they can look at the paper and then just, you know, approve it based on what you've written. Um, and, and often, that you know, that if it's a responsible IACUC, of course, um, and I think we've, you know, established that often they are not, uh, but they'll, you know, follow up with questions and be like, hey, you need to elaborate on this. Or you need to elaborate on that. But I almost feel like that that should be a kind of sort of testimony that should be that should occur in person. I mean, it's a committee and it just makes sense to me because you need that. On, I, I feel like you need that on both ends, um, especially when it comes to things like what you were saying. It, it almost seemed like you were invisible in this whole process. Like they didn't, you know, that they, they didn't follow up with you. And um, yeah, I don't know what I'm trying to say, but yeah, I wonder if that would. Yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I, I completely agree. Um, especially like, I, I think the reason they don't do that is because like I said, especially in academia, they're just like pumping out research. Yes. Um. And whether it's for, you know, their public image or for, for funding or whatever. And, um, you know, there's nothing wrong with institutions doing a lot of research. But when this when there's this lack of oversight, I think that when it's a highly invasive project like like that Otter project, yeah, there definitely needs to be like the person that's doing that project needs to almost be put on trial. Mm-hmm. You know, you're cutting open a wild you're taking a wild animal out of the wild and cutting it open and putting something in it and dealing with drugs you know where it's a danger to the animal but also a huge danger to the people yeah there needs to be some upfront um scrutinizing of this protocol and the fact that that protocol was so scant was so shocking Mm -hmm. um like you're doing a surgery like come on i just i'll never as long as i live i'll never get over the shock of the things that we experienced on that because it's just it's just the ultimate um failure of an cook and you know uh, as wildlife researchers you'd think that we would care a little bit more about our animal subjects because we're there doing research for conservation so you don't want to be killing your research subjects right. and it happens sometimes but like i said everything that happened on this project was avoidable yeah and so there's no excuse mm-hmm. and um yeah i you know yeah, I I just compl- I agree with what you said that there should be some meeting up front for for things like this that would really solve a lot of issues. Yeah, you know, I know people don't like oh more, you know, a process that's a headache to get the research going. But when you're dealing with something that's a serious, you know, you're taking an animal's life and it's into your hands when you capture it. Yeah, especially when you immobilize it, and that's not something that should be taken seriously. And fortunately, we were you know taught re- that really well in the bear study but yeah un- unfortunately elsewhere that's not emphasized you know because 
capture and handling projects are just so widespread. It's just sort of like, it's just something we do. We just capture animals. But no, it's it's a much greater responsibility than that. And it needs to be taken extremely seriously. Yeah, you can't take it lightly at all. Um, yeah, you know, you're right. All those things were, were avoidable. And, you know, in the other examples we're going to give, you know, just avoidable uh, mistakes and transgressions. And yeah, I mean, if everybody could just, you know, it, there has to be some sort of deposition where everybody sits down together and it'll keep everybody, it would keep everybody accountable, not just the researcher and the research team, but also the committee, because if everybody's sitting in the same room and, you know, discussing all of this in person and giving justifications in person and keeping it each other accountable in person in a sort of um, official kind of procedure. Um, yeah, you could, you could avoid a lot of problems, like you said. Um, so we, I mean, I, after this happened and of course, like we wanted to make it this information widespread because we just learned about other things that were happening at this university, similarly on other wildlife projects, and so, not that we're trying to like smear this university, but because it's an institutional problem, you know, we want people to be aware of it. And all of a sudden, these other stories started coming out of the woodworks, all having to do, not surprisingly, with graduate student projects where things were not handled appropriately or ethically. Um, you know, and just to name a few, you know, our, our one mutual friend told me about... Um, a project he was working on where they were collaring skunks and raccoons and the graduate student didn't have any experience deploying collars on animals and our mutual friend from the Bear City did. So he was trying to make recommendations, but again, ego gets in the way. And so recommendations weren't accepted and, you know, skunk, especially raccoons ended up, their collars were too tight and they got gangrenous. Um, some of them had to be euthanized. And so, like, that kind of thing is just so, um, again, avoidable, particularly because ego got in the way. But also, if there was more oversight, you know, mm -hmm. you, I understand in a very important part of the wildlife graduate student process is, um, you know, learning and, and problem solving. But we are in the 21st century now, and a lot of research we're doing has been done before or you know things that are similar so we have things to look other projects and methodologies to look back at to base our methodologies on and yeah we are refining them or we should be refining them not like you know backpedaling getting worse and we know you know how animals should be handled and how collars should be put on and stuff and there needs to be oversight with stuff like that and yeah, it's about the graduate student learning, but not at the expense of the animal. Like, again, what's more important, the research or the the ethics and, and the animals themselves? Like, it's not justified if the animals are dying or being harmed like that. Yeah, especially in, you know, like we were, we were talking about academic settings, you know, a, a, an advisor's relationship with their grad student, you know, it should be, um, it should be an apprenticeship sort of relationship. You know, you, you can't just put your name on something and just be like, all right, go ahead and do your thing. Um, 
you have to be much more involved. You know, when I was working with John, it wasn't an academic setting for me, um, even though he's, he does the research for, he does the research with um, University of Maryland, but I wasn't a student. Um, it felt like an apprenticeship to me because he was involved in all aspects of it. And he taught me everything I needed to learn by demonstration. And I, you know, it, it still allows for mistakes, but in a controlled setting, like you were saying, you know, it has to be, you know, you can't allow for fatal mistakes basically, or mortal mistakes. Like you have to allow for mistakes that can be controlled. Yeah. And like, I, I'm kind of like in an interesting position now because, you know, I came to Texas State University. Well, first of all, no one studied saddleable storks before. Mm-hmm. So we have to look to other species um, on how we're going to base our methodology as far as capturing, you know, attaching um, a, a tracking transmitter is is going to be the same across a lot of large birds. But as far as capturing animals, it's it's different. It could be different. And so... I would I would never to I would never presume that I could just like cowboy it and go out there which unfortunately a lot of times happens. So you know I have my one of my main partners on the project Andre Boda who I first pitched the project to. You know he's handled a lot of birds including other stork species. Uh, but then my advisor here Clay Green, you know he's never worked in Africa or he's never handled storks but he's done a lot of other water bird stuff like herons and egrets and and other water birds and mammals and so you know he has experience that's applicable so while none of us have had prior experience handling saddles putting all of our experience together and brainstorming about this stuff is an important process and you know looking at the research of others well unfortunately saddles don't nesting colonies so capturing is a, is a whole different ball game but you know i was looking at a paper of abdim storks where they were like getting chicks from a nest that's like you know whatever 40 feet high and using like a giant noose pole and like putting around their neck and then like pulling them down with a noose pole yeah and like that that like how did that even get published this is um, terrible because it like that totally violates ethics in my opinion but no you just have to use discretion with stuff like that and when you when there is no other research on your species to to base your stuff on and so it's kind of been an interesting um challenge for me because yeah we want to get storks you know i don't want to say at all costs because we don't want to kill them or kill ourselves Mm -hmm. but we have to try new things and get creative and but we have to keep it into perspective you know is this gonna hurt the stork or hurt us because these things could freaking kill us. And so it's, it's kind of, it's just been an interesting process. And so when you, and my advisor is the chair of the, the IACUC committee. So, you know, when you, again, I didn't have to like sit in front of the IACUC, but when you're doing something for the first time, like, well, how are they going to question it? You know? Right. Yeah. <laughs> because you're doing something that, you know, is, is new methodology wise, like, you know, now we're going to use net guns, which are, are used a lot, but, you know, there there's always risks with stuff like that. And so I just have to keep, you know, as long as I've been working on this project, I just want to get storks so bad, but I have to keep it in perspective. Like, 
we could have easily had storks if we didn't care about injuring them, you know? Yeah. <laughs> it would have been a lot. It's a lot. E- all the people in the park, all the villagers were like, you haven't caught any yet. And I was like, well, we're trying not to hurt them. That's why we haven't caught any. Otherwise, it'd be a lot easier. Yeah. Yeah. Taking the easy route is not um, is not always the best. And this, the example I know, um, I guess I, I won't mention the university because it's not actually a repeat offender. This was a specific grad student and her advisor that um, that were a problem. So there was there was this grad student handling black bears. She was doing a black bear study, and the first time I saw her, she drove by um, really fast, by the way, through a prairie dog colony. Like, <laughs> like I was really like upset with her. Um, so anyway, um, and she knew that we we're studying prairie dogs there too. So like, she, you know, uh, John had told her, can you please drive more slowly? And she continued to drive fast. Anyway, that's just as an aside. Um, but germane to our, to what I'm about to say, because she clearly did not have much value for animal life. Um she was okay. Big, big no, no. She was handling black bears solo by herself. Like just the, just the thought of that is ridiculously just, it's ridiculous. Um, yeah. yeah. So she would be running to trap sites, which was another reason why she was driving so fast. She would be running to trap sites constantly at all hours of the day. And, you know, let me remind everybody, this was during the summer or let me just say this is during the summer and summer in New Mexico can get really hot, even at high elevations. So throughout the summer, all hours of the day. And the reason I, I make that point is because you should, you know, you should have your trap line checked by midday. You know, sometimes it takes longer, but you know, you should start really early, have your trap line checked. You should not, you should not have, you should not be checking the trap line, you know, well into the hottest hours of the day. You should already have checked them. But anyway, well, that's probably because she was by herself, so it took uh-huh. so long. <laughs> exactly. She was by herself, so nobody else was checking the trap sites but her. Um, so handling black bear solo obviously um, involves immobilization and drugs. And so she's immobilizing these black bears by herself, and she was not checking vitals. I mean, you can't. You can't check vitals if you're mo- if, if you're handling an immobilized bear by yourself. You know, somebody has to be at the rear checking their temperature. Somebody has to be um, uh, checking their breathing and their heart rate. You can't do it. I mean, unless you have eight arms, you can't do that by yourself. Um, So we knew that she wasn't taking taking vitals. And there was a story we'd heard about her from the, the previous year. Granted, this is hearsay, but I actually heard it from several different people during several different conversations, separate conversations. Um, but the year prior, she was handling a yearling and she was trying to mobilize it by herself. You know, the, usually, you know, one person will distract the bear while the other person comes in. It's it, like, for example, if you're using, um, the, a, a pole and she was, she was immobilizing the bear by herself. And so she got too close. She got too close and the bear clawed her. Um, And it wasn't even that bad, at least as I heard. Um, It wasn't even like a really bad clawing, but the bear clawed her. And because of that, because of that um, physical encounter, New Mexico Game and Fish had to put the bear down. Um, And I'll repeat, this is just hearsay, but, you know, there is is a a protocol um, here in New Mexico 
that if you have a violent encounter, you know, quote unquote, violent encounter with a bear, the bear gets put down. So because of her negligence, she made she made a fatal mistake. And, and the, the mistake was fatal for the bear that she was handling by herself. And her advisor, this was another situation where her advisor was was not present. Like, and I don't mean present physically, but he just wasn't present with this with the study. He wasn't uh, holding her accountable. He wasn't checking in on her. Um, who knows what the Aya cook looked like and, and, and all that. I don't know, but it's, I was, you know, I was really upset when I heard that, when I heard that story, um, because it's exactly, it is the ultimate, you know, it's the ultimate result that we're trying to avoid is the death of the animal. Um, you know, the suffering of the animal, obviously pain, stress, but the last thing you want, like Jonah said before, the last thing you want is for an animal to die um, under your care. Cause this is under your care. You you've trapped the animal. That bear was trapped by her trap. She was handling that bear. She was responsible for getting it through the process safely. Um, so it, it, yeah. So I don't know what happened to that student. I, I don't know if anybody made any official complaints and I wasn't in a place to make any official complaints because that, that story was hearsay and apparently it happened the year before and I didn't witness it myself. I feel like I should have at least tried to check up. So I do regret that I didn't like look into it more. Even if I hadn't witnessed anything, I regret that I didn't look into it more. And um, because we have to, you know, if, if, if nobody is, you know, acting as the voice for the animal, um, you know, it's important to step in in that situation. I hate to use that sort of animal activist language, voice for the animal, but it's true. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's very true. So yeah, yeah. When you're yeah. responsible mm-hmm. for the animal. Yeah. One thing, one thing that, you know, the avenues for um, voicing a complaint, especially if you were in that position, like, because we were like employed by the project, it was a little easier, but it's, it's sort of like a, you don't know what, where you should, where you're supposed to report things. Right. Yeah. And, you know, again, like, I think it's easy for a lot of people to think like, oh, you're, you're doing it to spite someone, but no, like, that's not what this is about. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm not like, we're not telling these stories to spite the researchers or spite the universities. It's, it's because this is a systemic issue mm-hmm. and like just going to keep saying it, like it, these things need to be taken very seriously. And unfortunately, not that these, you know, when stuff like this happens, it needs to be on in the headlines, but it, these things just get covered up too easily. Yeah. And so it was revealing when these kind of stories start to come out of the woodworks that, this is happening all over the place and no one, nothing's being done about it because, you know, it's, it's not something that you're learning about all the time, even though we should be learning about, I mean, these things shouldn't be happening, but, you know, I want to hear about these things so that we can improve them, you know? And I think that people are just people like this black bear researcher. It's just like research first and then, 
ethics and my own personal safety and the animal safety next? Yeah, there's a dangerous fixation on the data that, you know, a lot of researchers tend to fall into. And, you know, while the data is really important, you know, it's like Jonah was just saying, you know, you had to put the ethics before the science. Um, and if you've done everything correctly in your methodology and the process and the IACUC, you are putting ethics before the science. It is not difficult. Um, it's, it's just important that you remember that. It's just like taking care of yourself in the field. Uh, there's no benefit if your study subjects are injured or dead, um, just as there's no benefit if you're injured or dead. Um, so as, as well as you, you take care of yourself, you should be taking care of the animals just as well. Well, if you're bad at it, you should take, be taking care of the animals better than you're caring <laughs> for yourself <laughs> if you're bad at caring for yourself. But uh, you should value their lives as much as you value your own. Um, and, you know, I, I know I keep mentioning John. Like, I mean, okay, I, I'll admit that I analyze him a bit. But in this respect, <laughs> in this respect, um, John is obsessed with data. Um, like, just everything's about collecting all the data for him. And he is out, you know, he's out there with us at all times. Like he maybe takes one day off during the entire four or five months summer um, of being out there every single day. Um, so he's, you know, he is fixated <laughs> on the data, but not to a dangerous extent. You know, he's, the dogs come first, the prairie dogs come first. I mean, he even told us once, if I have a heart attack in my tower <laughs> if I, something happens where like I have a heart attack in my tower, you must release the dogs before you put me in the car to go to the hospital. <laughs> He's like, I will not hear of you putting me in the car to go to the hospital if you haven't released those dogs. Like you are not to leave a dog in a trap. <laughs> so, you know, even though he was obsessed with data, like he, he his priorities were where they had, where they were supposed to be. Um, you know, it was all about safety for the dogs as well. And on, on really, really hot summer days, um, if it was dangerous to leave the traps open, even, even on days where like the data we had to collect was really time sensitive, we had to get that data that day. If it was too hot, the traps would be closed and we would just be observing. Like he would, he would sacrifice the data that we needed, uh, in order to to keep the animals safe because we were responsible for them. So ethics was really important for him. And, you know, he didn't just, you know, he didn't, it wasn't just, what's the phrase? He walked the talk, right? Is that the phrase? Like he- Yeah, he talked the yeah. walk and walked the talk. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I guess so. <laughs> anyway, he, you know, he, he did as he said. And, um, you know, it, it when it comes to collecting data, when you're in the field doing research, you sh you should go to you should go to great lengths, but not at all costs. Like Jonah was saying, you know, not at all great lengths, but not at all costs. And that's actually, I think that describes John really well. And it would describe you if you put ethics before before the science. So you know, keep yourself accountable. Also, please keep your projects and your leaders accountable. You know, we've. We've talked about, you know, whistleblowing, things like that. But, you know, there's, I know, you know, it sounds all serious, but yeah, just, you know, all you have to do is, is open your mouth if you see an issue um, to, to keep everybody accountable. Because it is, like Jonah said, a systemic issue and you're participating in that system. So, you know, it's up to you to, um, you know, it's up to you to, to keep ethics at the forefront whenever you're out there doing research. 
Yeah, and just sort of something I thought of right now was a, a lot of projects I've been on, or a few of the projects I've been on, like they're so hesitant to let the public know like mm. the details of what we're doing. Yeah. And you know, mm-hmm. we did a lot. I mean, most of the Bear City work was landowner relations, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so we'd try to avoid using words like snaring because those just evoke emotions. So we'd just say like capturing or trapping and stuff. But like we did a really good job, I think, at just at being as transparent as we could. Yeah. And, you know, some people didn't like that because they didn't think we should be touching the wild animals at all. Mm-hmm. But once we explained the process, a lot of people were more open to letting us use their land because, you know, they thought they thought we were just like snaring bears, like hunting or, or something, you know, people that just that word has a negative connotation. And some other projects I've been on, it's just like, Shh, don't don't like don't mention that we we do that or, or don't like say that on social media or and it's just like, well, we're doing it. And do we want people to remain ignorant or do we want them to be more informed about what we're doing so that they're not as hostile to what we're doing? Yep. And if your if your methodology is is ethical, then it's not going to be a problem. Yep. And you know, th- you know, pointing to the eye cook is a way you could explain it to people. You know, this is something that's this isn't just us having the final say on this. Like, this is a proved methodology that um, follows a certain standard, or theoretically does, and we shouldn't be afraid to let people know what we're doing. It's mm-hmm. it was just so frustrating, like having that attitude um and it's just it's ridiculous honestly yeah the ultimate purpose as well as the immediate purpose of wildlife research is for conservation um and that's why we're out there collecting data in the field and and also laboratory research is for conservation as well um for wildlife um so you know if if your ultimate goal if your goal is conservation then your your goal should be not harming the animal. Your goal should be not to harm the animals. I mean, if you're a, a conservationist and every, you know, if you're a field researcher, you should, you should consider yourself a conservationist as well. Um, so do no harm as they say. Okay, so a, a few sustainability tips today that actually are related to that piece of news that I shared about um, that study on bird population trends. So, and you can find this on on that website, um, 3billionbirds.org. It's just seven simple actions that you can take to help birds and help, um, oh, uh, that's like, I hate when people say that, like, I'm going to help <laughs> Like, you know, prevent this, these population declines from continuing. Um, so one major thing is to, to make windows safer because millions of birds die every year from, from window strikes. And so there's a lot of things you can do to prevent that. And, you know, you can read more about that on the website. I won't go into details about that. Um, number two is to keep cats indoors, which is pretty obvious because also millions of birds die each year because of cats killing them. You could also 
reduce the amount of lawn and plant native plants, which actually I think we had in our last, um, one of our last sustainability tips, because that's just going to promote birds to come to the area. And you, so by planting natives, you're creating bird habitat, whereas lawns are a ridiculous inheritance from the British that we are obsessed with. I hate lawns. Um, <laughs> I know. Oh my gosh. I listened to a really interesting podcast about lawn, about grass and yeah. like just the stinking British famous <laughs> lawns. So, and they just, they it's not good wildlife habitat. Like, yeah, robins go in them sometimes, but the, yeah. that's not sufficient. So um, get rid of your lawn because it also wastes water. Um, avoid pesticides when you're you know, planting things um, for obvious reasons for wildlife and humans. Um, you could drink bird-friendly coffee or just don't drink any coffee at all. <laughs> um, <laughs> but bird-friendly coffee is like coffee that's, whether it's shade-grown or it's not like um, rainforest has been cut down to make some monoculture of, um, for growing coffee. And then, well, I always add on a fourth R, refuse, reduce, recycle, Refuse, reduce, reuse, and recycle plastic. So recycling is the last option, which of course we've talked about before. So that is big because, um, yeah, that as we've talked about before, that negatively affects not just birds, lots of other wildlife. And then finally, this is like a corny one, but you can go bird watching and you know use citizen science thing projects like eBird or participate in Project Feeder Watch or Breeding Bird Survey because all of these. Projects are what, you know, helps this study come to these findings. And without this citizen science data, we wouldn't have this information. And it, they just, um, they contribute a lot. So you can turn your regular bird watching into a scientific endeavor. Okay, so as always, thank you so much for listening. Um, thank you for sticking with us through delays and such and, you know, maybe production or audio issues, you know, we're doing this all on our own. It's just a passion project. So, you know, we appreciate all of our listeners and we want to get in touch with you. So if you have any questions or comments, please connect with us. Uh, as usual, we are on Facebook or Instagram or Facebook and Instagram at Conservation Chronicles and you can email us at conservationchronicles at gmail.com. Send us emails. You know, we've, you know, if you're, if you're a longtime listener, um, you probably heard one of our episodes where I, we did an email or I did an email response, um, you know, and that was really stimulating to our overall discussion um, on conservation uh, because it, it's a dialogue, you know, it, so yeah. So we would like more dialogue with you. So, and you can also visit our website at, conservationchronicles.podbean.com where you can listen to other episodes and please write and review us on whatever episode or on whatever podcast platform you are listening to us from yep thanks for listening <laughs>